0: This is Brittany Hodak, author of Creating Superfans, How to Turn Your Customers into Lifelong Advocates, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast.
1: Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett.
2: Hello. Thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Brittany Hodak to talk about her book, Creating Superfans, How to Turn Your Customers into Lifelong Advocates, published by Page Two. Britney Hodak is an award-winning entrepreneur, speaker, and author who has delivered keynotes around the world to organizations like American Express and the United Nations. She's written hundreds of articles for Forbes, Adweek, Success, and other top publications. She's appeared on programs on NBC, CBS, ABC, and Fox, and she's worked with some of the world's biggest brands and entertainers, including... Walmart, Disney, Katy Perry, and Dolly Parton. Entrepreneur Magazine calls her the expert at creating loyal fans for your brand. And, interesting fact, her first job was as a radio station mascot. Brittany, congratulations on creating super fans and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Thanks so much, Douglas. I'm so excited to be here.
2: So I should thank Matt Lyles, our mutual acquaintance. He's the host of the Simple Brand Podcast. He brought me to your attention, and uh, I was excited to see that so many people endorsed your book, who I've been honored to interview on the Marketing Book Podcast, including Jay Bear and Dory Clark and Joey Coleman, John Hall, Shama hyder Phil Jones. And, and then I also saw that you mentioned John Rulon, author of Giftology. And then a forward is by Shep Hyken, so I'm just overdosing on excitement. <laughs> I see that, and I think, man, this is a good book, and I'm clearly interviewing the right people. So I was uh, excited to see all those folks. Almost, like You know, we could almost make it a, a marketing book podcast reunion when I'm reading this book. And then I love how every chapter, and seemingly every subchapter, is the name of a song. <laughs> I see what you did there.
0: Thank you for noticing that. Yes. Yes.
2: Only at the very end of the book do you acknowledge that you were doing that because there were all these sort of earworms going through my head thinking, "Wait a minute." And after a while I thought, "Wait a minute. I don't I don't recognize that that subtitle, but I bet it's a song." So, um, I see what you did there. And I should also add this book is beautifully designed. I mean, it's it was more beautifully designed than it needed to be. You know, sometimes the books are just you know pretty straightforward, nice looking books. But this one is really graphically very, very nice.
0: Thank you. I think that was a very nice way of calling me extra, and I love it. Um, I like making things more fun than they need to be. I've there been we go. Of that before.
2: <laughs> wow. Well, the proof is in the pudding here because you uh, certainly pay that off in the book. And I learned so many interesting things about you from the book. I'm I'm just loaded up on. Brittany Hodak trivia, like you were on the TV show Shark Tank, is that right?
0: I was guilty, yes, yes.
2: And you, like me, you're a big fan of the Killers, the band. I
0: am, I am. Are, is Sam's Town your favorite Killers album, or uh, I don't or know? Is that I, one just, of the I just
2: crank up the Spotify machine and start rocking out. So, but <laughs> I mean, I like a lot of bands, but I like uh, Lemon. And, and then so many musicians you mentioned in the. Book whom you've interviewed or worked with. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is so interesting. And I even noticed that you've had an association with Taylor Swift. So you know, maybe my daughter's going to be impressed. But you know, I'm I'm trying to find whatever I can to to try and impress her. And let's see. Also, your husband went to Michigan, and so you're both big Michigan football fans.
0: Guilty again. Yes. Yeah.
2: (laughs) I saw that you have a master's degree in marketing, and you lived on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, just like I did which uh, makes us both uptown girls. See what I did there? (laughs) You're not the only one that can play these... uh, Uh, Very well played. ...song games. So I wanted to read uh, from two sections at the beginning of the talk here, and then I got so many questions to ask you. So I want to start on page six, where you write, I've spent most of my career studying fandom, working to understand why some things experience exponential growth while others fail to launch. Why some brands go viral while others go bust. This book is the product of nearly two decades of work and research across many facets of business and pop culture. Whether we're talking about rock stars or real estate, a brick and mortar store or an online business, superfans are critically important. They exist in every industry, although they go by different names. Perhaps you call them VIPs promoters, frequent flyers, advocates, season ticket holders, or subscribers. They are the customers who will consistently choose you at the exclusion of others and tell their friends and even strangers to do the same. The loyal, enthusiastic customers who will keep buying from you again and again. And then I want to jump over to page 15 where you write, This book isn't written to help the existing superstars grow their fan bases. It's a manual for the rest of us. A proven, easy-to-implement system that anyone, including you, can put into practice to transform from a potential commodity provider into a category leader in the eyes of your prospects and customers, and maybe even a category of one. Over the past 15 years, I've worked with brands of all sizes, from early-stage startups to beloved nonprofits to corporate titans like Walmart and Disney to help their executives, salespeople, marketing teams, product designers, and service representatives create, engage, and multiply superfans. Creating superfan customers should be a top priority for every business person and every brand today. A well-executed superfan strategy is one of the most powerful ways to future-proof any business against competitors and market conditions. So before we get into all of the book here, can you explain how fandom And identity are intrinsically linked.
0: Yes. So for many people, the things that you identify as a fan of become part of your identity. It's how you think about yourself. You might think of yourself as a Michigan fan, as you said before. You might identify various parts of your life based on the music that you are listening to, the things that you had in common with others. And as humans, we look for those commonalities in other other people. So you might meet someone for the first time, feel like you have nothing in common with them, and then find out that your favorite movie is their favorite movie. And now all of a sudden, you guys have this connection. There's this overlap where even though your stories have been completely separate, you now have this shared thing that bonds you together. And that's how relationships form and grow. And the same is true for all of the brands that we identify with, that we look to and say, oh yes, I'm the kind of person who uses this brand or I'm the kind of person who buys things from this company. It starts to become part of your identity. That's why logos are so powerful. That's why you know people join fan groups online for things like the 12-foot skeletons at Home Depot or your favorite clothing brand or your favorite local restaurant. We see ourselves in part part Based on the things that we invite into our worlds, either with our money, with our time, or with our attention.
2: Let's talk about something important. So, Brittany, one of my favorite lines is at the beginning of the book, and that's where you write Over the years, I've found that when brands consistently put customers first, everything else falls into place. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? (laughs) You <laughs> so, Brittany, I often wonder why some people just love the Marketing Book Podcast, or I like to think they do, and others don't. And all I can think about is that people who don't like the Marketing Book Podcast are not really, really, really ridiculously good-looking. So explain why do we love some things, but not others?
0: So I think that the single biggest threat to every brand, every business, anyone trying to to establish attention is apathy, right? It's not awareness. It's not that we don't know about certain things. It's that we don't care. And the reason we don't care is because we haven't been given a reason to. So the the reason that we love some things is because there was like a flashpoint. There was a moment where it became hyper relevant to us, either because of our interests or because of a certain need that we had at the time, some sort of transformation that we were looking for, something we had perhaps been struggling with. There was some point where we said, that's it. That's the one. Because it solved a problem in our lives. It met a need in our lives. And all of a sudden, our lives were better in some way because it was a part of them, whether that's, you know, because we love uh, watching TV and passing that time with this show that we're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to binge the whole season. I can't wait till next season or because of a product or or even because of an experience like a, like a restaurant in your town. But there's something that made you say, I want to come back. I want to do this again. And so for brands looking to create that connection point, I really truly think that the number one thing that you've got to worry about is how to overcome apathy. Mm -hmm. How do you get not just the attention of someone who you know, already has a lot going on. Is already super busy. Has a million messages coming their way every single day. How do you make them care? How do you succinctly show them the value proposition of whatever your thing is in a way that immediately becomes hyper relevant to their lives?
2: And we're going to get to apathy in just a minute, but I want to get one definition out of the way because, um, as you know, I have a foam number one finger. You know the the thing you have at a sports uh, stadium.
0: I do. I saw you share a picture of it online.
2: That's right. Uh, but I want to go back here because I think people may be thinking that it's really only people like that. You write, when you see superfan in this book, I don't want you to think of people packing a stadium on game day or donning cosplay at Comic-Con. Yes, those are superfans, but not the kind we're going to focus on creating here. So for the rest of us, explain what you're talking about when you, Brittany Hodak, says superfan.
0: Well, when I, Brittany Hodak, say fans, I define that as a customer or stakeholder who is so delighted by their experience with the brand, product, or service that they become an enthusiastic advocate. So these are customers or partners who have such a great experience that they're going to come back, meaning they're going to continue to choose you at the exclusion of others, and they're going to tell their friends. They're going to become an advocate for you because you have made their life better in some way, and people are generally helpful and want to pass along that great information when you, you know, have discovered something that has improved your life in some way, you're very likely to pass that information along to people in your network.
2: Yes, I'm going to repeat it because it's so good. A super fan is a customer or stakeholder who is so delighted by their experience with a brand, product, or service that they become an enthusiastic advocate. Let's talk about the latter to super fandom or as as I like to think of it as The Stairway to Heaven. See what I did there?
0: Ah, uh, I, I I really missed out on that. I, I think I should have 100% had that in the book.
2: No, I think <laughs> yours actually works better. But of course, <laughs> by then you had me primed to look for any uh, uh, other thing. The Stairway to Heaven, and it's seven steps, and they all start with A. And I'd like you to walk us up the stairs. And I want to go back to the first one, because you already mentioned that it is apathy, which has really, really got my attention. You write that when I consult with new clients, they often tell me they have an awareness problem. Not enough people know about their amazing brand and the wonderful products and services they sell. And yet you often determine that it's it's not an awareness problem it's an apathy problem explain
0: so lots of times when people say oh not enough people know about xyz whatever plenty of people know they just don't care and the <laughs> reason they don't care is because they haven't been given a re- they haven't been given a, a thorough enough reason to a compelling enough reason to so you know, we're living in a world where it is easier than ever to to get the attention of anyone you want. You can target anybody that you want, down to you know the smallest details, and not just online, but also offline. Right? Like there are there are lots of people uh, making lots of money uh, by by sharing data in a way that lets you get your message in front of exactly the right people. But the other edge of that double-edged sword is that there are so many messages being hyper-targeted to all of us that you've got to be that much more compelling to break through. And so when I write about the latter to super fandom in the book, the analogy that I use, which again is probably not as good as a stairway to heaven.
2: Well, you, you probably would have to get Led Zeppelin's permission, and they're very strict.
0: Uh, so my um, Allison, who was the um, proofreader for the book, was very specific Um, there were several instances she had me change stuff just slightly because she was like if you don't match the punctuation and capitalization just right then it's no longer a song title it's a lyric and you're (laughs) allowed to use song titles but you're not allowed to use lyrics so there were like 30 instances in the book where she was like you have to add a comma here You have to take this comma away. You have an exclamation point, but it has to be a period. So yes, we're very careful uh, because you can't keep somebody from using a title because they're not copyrightable, however lyrics are. So,
2: Wow. Shout out to all you lawyers who are listening.
0: Yes. And all of you proofreaders too, like Allison, who was absolutely amazing. But the, the analogy that I use in the book is like those carnival ladders. Uh, Sometimes they're called Jacob's ladders where, you know, you've seen them. They're like wobbly ladders. They're connected at a single point on the bottom and the top. And then there's all these rungs that you have to try to climb um, without falling off while strangers point at you and laugh, walking down the midway. So, What I talk about is the fact that so many people think that awareness is the first rung, Mm -hmm. like that's where they start from. But in reality, the first rung is apathy. You've got to overcome the fact that, you know, people may not care about your thing unless you can make it relevant to their lives. But then apathy isn't just the first rung, it's also the sway of the ladder. It's also the cushion below. It's the entire boardwalk around you. Like At any point, if you're not keeping people engaged, if you're not giving them a reason to continue to care, to continue to engage with your brand, there is a very real possibility that they will quit. Right, mm. we, we, we all know this. Like So much, so much money is spent on retention um, because people are like, oh, wait, I'm losing them, I'm losing them, I'm losing them, rather than just delighting customers from day one so that you don't have to have a retention strategy. You don't have to worry about what you're going to do when they're ready to leave.
2: I would argue too many companies don't focus on retention. But let me ask uh, – let me complicate things here. What, explain why apathy is at the bottom instead of something like anger or dissatisfaction
0: you know it's kind of like the saying the opposite of love is not hate but indifference Mm -hmm. if you have a customer who is angry um or upset then they have valuable information to share with you and they've also had some level of experience with your brand or at least your category already. So um, I put awareness as the second step of the ladder above apathy because now someone has is no longer apathetic and they have an awareness of you. If somebody is already angry at you or, or has something to share uh, negative, A, that could be very useful information to you and B, they are not apathetic. They have an opinion. It's just an unfavorable one rather than a curious or favorable one.
2: And then can you briefly walk us up the rest of the A's?
0: Yes. So um, the second rung is awareness, as we've talked about. And if you are able to pique someone's interest or get their attention, the next phase is attraction. This is sort of the consideration phase of, oh, yeah, maybe this is for me. Let me learn more. This is, you know, maybe they clicked that, they tapped that learn more button or, or they signed up for your email newsletter.
2: I define. Which is a big step, it seems to me.
0: Oh, it's absolutely a big step. And it's one that if you skip over, people are going <laughs> to fall off the ladder, right? Like if you try to go from awareness to action, you're like those weirdos who are like trying to get you to marry them on the first date, right? Yes. You've skipped over all of that important stuff. So mm-hmm. um, attraction is a is a very big phase and a very important phase, again, because just like that rope ladder, if you're not careful to balance things exactly right on every step you're not going to progress to the next rung you're going to fall off back into that you know apathy pillow underneath the ladder (laughs)
2: yes so that's the attraction and then they've taken action
0: yes so the fourth step on the ladder to super fandom is action and i define action is when somebody has spent money with you once So they've Mm -hmm. become a customer. They've converted, right? So that's the first step um, of of actually spending money with your brand. And this is where a lot of companies, especially in the B2B space, sort of um, reach the danger zone, right? Because they've focused so much on customer acquisition that they have not really optimized what the customer's experience looks like after that check is cast or after that contract is signed it's like oh <laughs> rinse repeat rinse repeat let me hand yeah. it off to the onboarding team mm-hmm. hopefully things will go well i think people normally have good experiences i'm never going to think about this customer not my again, problem right?
2: yeah, tag him and yeah exactly mm-hmm.
0: exactly so um which is a huge problem that i talk about uh, at length and other parts of the book but uh for that for the purpose of the ladder of the super fandom um that first time they spend money is, is action, and I talk about getting to the next drunk, which is the second purchase. And at that phase, I call that step adoption. Somebody has made the conscious decision to come back; they're spending money with you again. Huge, huge, yeah, and and also really critical because this is this this is the point where you need to make sure that their second rodeo is at least as enjoyable as the first, because otherwise you're just going to confuse people. They're going to be like, oh, it was great once, but then the second time it was just okay. So putting yourself in in your customer seat, um, if you go to a restaurant and the first time you go, it's amazing. And the second time you go, it's just okay. Are you going to roll the dice and go a third time to find out which one of those experiences was the exception? Or are you going to say, yeah, you know there's a lot of other restaurants in the city. Maybe if I ever happen to be right there and hungry I'll eat there again, but I'm not going to go out of my way because I now have questions about what is the experience I should expect.
2: Right. Might not have been consistent.
0: Yeah, so it is so critical in whatever business that you're in to make sure that that second experience is at least as good as the first.
2: TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive time-consuming and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary they wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And then that leaves us with affinity and then advocacy.
0: Yes. So after uh, somebody has has spent money with you at least twice, uh, there's a varying degree of time that it could take someone to really feel that affinity to really say, uh, you know, I start to identify as someone who who. Will come back to this brand. Mm-hmm. This is is becoming less of a commodity provider and more of a I've got I've got my guy or I've got my gal or I've got my company. Um, so that's really affinity. And then the final step on the ladder to super fandom, where we want all of those customers to get, is advocacy. And I say in the book that the difference between affinity and advocacy is really just amplification. It's that they're telling people about you. I think anybody who's who's been in business for more than a few years has customers who love us, but don't tell anybody about us because we're like their best kept secret, right? They're like, no, I don't want my competitors to know about you. And uh, that exists in pretty much every industry and that's totally fine. Uh, but I would disqualify those people who aren't spreading the word about you from my definition of superfans, Because if you recall, I said, it's not just that they've had an amazing experience and come back, it's that they're also telling other people. They're out there creating more customers for you.
2: Yes, and you had such a great example later in the book about Chewy.com, which is where you and I both get our dog food, and I really think that company likes my dog.
0: Oh, I promise you they do.
2: Yeah, and so uh, my, my wife loves them. She tells people about it. I just thought, what a perfect example of that. Now, I just wanted to touch on one thing about brands, and <laughs> this is something that got me very excited, and believe it or not, uh, that's why I don't have so many books about brands on the show because a lot of them still ass- – they still have a sort of an aftertaste of, oh, it's something the marketing department can control, which is nothing could be further from the truth. And I want to quote from page 37 where you write, as much as you'd like to think your brand is totally within your control, the clever ad campaign and social slogans and punchy website copy, the reality is that the employees representing your brand are a huge part Of the equation. That's because your brand isn't what you say it is, it's what your customers say it is. And their interactions with your employees represent some of the most tangible, memorable experiences they will have with your brand. So Brittany, you sent me your book and it included a very nice handwritten note, uh, a metal uh, bookmark numbered, a sticker, a lollipop I mean, come on. And you sent me this handwritten note, which I really appreciate, and you talk about how rare handwritten notes are. And just so you know, you're going to be getting one from me. And it's not going to be written by a machine. It's written by the guy you're talking to right now. But on the back of this handwritten note, you have, super fans are created at the intersection of your story and every customer's story. And then... I noticed that that was kind of a running theme throughout, <laughs> throughout your book. In <laughs> yeah. fact, you even warned your readers that that was coming. So I want to talk about models.
1: I'm a model, you know what I mean? And I do my little turn on the catwalk.
2: You have a model that is the bind of this book. And you write that it is like the Heidi Klum Supermodel of customer experience frameworks. Now, I don't mean to put you on the catwalk, Brittany Hodak, but can you briefly walk us through the model and then? We'll follow up with a few specifics from from each part of it.
0: Yes, Douglas. I would be happy to walk you through the framework in the book for everyone listening. And I call it the supermodel. Thank you for, for thank you for the sound clip. That was that was a lot of fun. Um, and the supermodel is the framework that I've developed over the past several years to try to help encapsulate everything that it takes to create a remarkable customer experience.
2: And Brittany, just so the listener knows, this only represents a couple hundred pages of the book
0: oh yeah it's like basically yeah basically (laughs) blank and you miss it but there's some
2: very specific things i want to dig into (laughs) each one of these but high level high level
0: yes high level well i believe that in order for a framework to be effective it's got to be simple to remember like if your team can't remember it they're never going to do it um, and so I use the word "super" as the ne- the mnemonic device. It's it's an acronym S U P E R. So I call it the supermodel. Um, you, you get it. You know, if you want to create super fans, you've got to be super, right? It's very sticky, very easy to remember. Although one reviewer, I forget which one of the big review sites, one reviewer was like, "People may find it hokey," and I was like, "Oh, what a what an interesting choice of words to use." So I hope no one listening thinks this is hokey. Idiot. Thank you, Douglas. Yeah, I prefer sticky um, to hokey, but you know, whatever, choose your adjective. Hey,
2: this podcaster got it. So I'd consider it a success.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So super, super is an acronym that stands for start with your story. And I don't mean lead with your story. I mean, everything's got to resonate from a point of your truth. What is your superpower? Why does your business exist? Why does each one of your employees represent that business? Why are they doing this instead of something else, right? So that's S. U is understand your customer story. So I talk a lot about the idea of active listening, of the need to put empathy before authority, and what it looks like to really understand your individual customers. P stands for personalized. As you said, I warned people that they're going to hear me say often that super fans are created at the intersection of those two stories because, you know, if you don't grasp that concept, it's going to be very hard to create those super fan customers. If you don't understand how to make your thing relevant to their life, mm-hmm. you're going to have a really hard time creating super fans. So yeah, because that's it's really
2: thing. easy to start just talking about yourself. <laughs> I see companies do it all the time, and I think well, no, wait, there's there's no overlap here on the Venn diagram, folks.
0: Exactly. Yeah. The Venn diagram, you know, is like two circles as far away from each other as they can get. Right. It's like Saturn and Jupiter. Um, I know those planets are, are next to each other, but you know what I mean. They're also very, very far apart. <laughs> so that is that is P personalized. That's where um, those first two come together. And I say in the book. The supermodel. Every pillar of the framework builds on the one before it, which mm-hmm. is also by design. So again, you start with your story, then you get to understand your customer story. P. Personalize is where you bring all of that together, so that you can reach the fourth pillar of the framework, which is E. Exceed expectations. So I talk a lot in the book about expectation setting. Customer expectations have never been higher. I'm sure everybody listening to this show right now knows that from from living in the world we live in and marketing to customers right now. Uh, so the fourth pillar is all about how to exceed customer expectations. And then the fifth and final pillar, R, stands for repeat. It's all about the automation and the systems and processes that that you should be employing to help free up more of your employees' time, bandwidth, and mental energy toward really focusing on those things that aren't yet possible to be automated. Those little touches that are going to make someone feel the love and say, oh, I get it. This is how this company is different.
2: Well, now I want to circle back with just a couple questions about each one of those that just really got to me. And I guess if I could only ask one question about stories, which We've had books about stories on the show, and it's very popular, and people are very interested. But can you explain how stories accelerate the path to connection, as you say?
0: Yes. So over millennia, we as humans have become hardwired to react to stories. They help us understand things. Uh, They help us connect the dots much quicker than than reason or logic or, or facts or any of those other things that we uh, would like to think that people care about, you know, terms, conditions, rates, all of those things, <laughs> that none, of, none of them matter nearly as much as stories. And that's because when we hear a story, our brain thinks in pictures. And very oftentimes, we see ourselves in those pictures, right? Mm-hmm. Like when I talk about my dog, Bandit or my dog Bear, there's a very good chance, Douglas, that you were seeing your dog Monty in your head. Even though I was talking about my dogs, you were very likely thinking about your dog, absolutely, because that's how brains work. Mm-hmm. So when you can tell somebody a story, when you can get them to engage, and both the left and the right sides of their brains are working together mm-hmm. to process that information, they are going to, you know, get it. To use a scientific term, uh, they are going to get it much faster than if you're like, well, let me talk to you about the benefits. <laughs> let me tell you um, about you know, these financing deals that are about to disappear. You've really got to paint a picture. And the way that you do that is with words by telling a story.
2: And you've got great examples of companies that get it as as it relates to uh, telling a story. And then what's interesting is that not like Inception, I can't remember if you mentioned that movie in your book, but it's like you, it then goes a couple levels down with some of the models. So I want to go to the second part on understand and dig into this for a minute But first I want to play, you you quote Oprah from her very last TV show, and I want to play a segment from that and then ask you to expand
1: on why you included that. I've talked to nearly 30,000 people on this show, and all 30,000 had one thing in common. They all wanted validation. And if I could reach through this television, sit on your sofa, or sit on a stool in your kitchen right now, I would tell you that every single person you ever will meet shares that common desire. They want to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Does what I say mean anything to you? Understanding that one principle that everybody wants to be heard has allowed me to hold the microphone for you all, all these years, with the least amount of judgment. Now, I can't say I would not judge in some days. Some days I had to judge just a little bit. But it's helped me to stand and to try to do that with an open mind and to do it with an open heart. It has worked for this platform, and I guarantee you it will work for yours. Try it with your children, with your husband, your wife, your boss, your friends. Validate them. I see you. I hear you. And what you say matters to me
2: validation so interesting and in this section this is what i really wanted to get into you've got another acronym using the word story and i thought this was really really interesting for anybody in sales or marketing at understanding their customers it, it, it'll it almost walks you through it almost forces you <laughs> to understand them and i was wondering if you could we could go through that like the s stands for struggles talk about what you mean there
0: Yes, so the S stands for struggles and I I think that too often people whether they're in sales or they're in their service support um you know even marketing they approach business with a I solve one problem and I bet you have it mentality.
2: Now I just have to laugh cuz I get that email from SaaS vendors almost every day.
0: 17 times a day? Yeah. Yes. Which I'm sure you probably laughed then at the story later in the book when I talked about the woman in the mall who was basically like a sass vendor in real life. And I was like, Wow, what's normally playing out of my inbox just happened in real life in front of me and it was jarring.
2: Yeah, she said you walked by her kiosk <laughs> and she said, You are so pretty. And you thought, Wow. And then she said I was
0: like, Oh my gosh, she's so what a what a wonderful, lovely compliment. Yeah. But and that I, wasn't the end of the sentence. <laughs> yeah,
2: take it to tell us the freckles story.
0: Yeah. What she actually was in the process of saying is I too quickly was like, Oh my gosh, she's so nice um was you're so pretty for someone with so much sun damage on her face <laughs> And I was like, What? Like what I was confused. I was honestly like, I think I stopped walking because I was just like trying to process that like emotional roller coaster of that sentence. Yeah. Um And I I was honestly, like, I was confused. I was like, wait, what does she even mean? And she kept talking about sun damage. And I said, are you talking about my freckles? Like, I was so just thrown. And she said, once you're over the age of 30, they're not freckles. They're sunspots and they aren't cute anymore. And I was, again, just like, what? What is happening right now?
2: And um, what's going and through I, my mind when I read a story like that, or I experience something like that? I I just want to say, does this actually work for you?
0: <laughs> exactly right, and that's exactly the same. It didn't for her. I mean, maybe for other people, but I just told her I liked my sun damage and kept walking. Um, but I I feel that same. Emotional roller coaster every time, or not anymore, because I know it's equally as insincere when it happens in my inbox um, as much as it was in that Las Vegas mall that day. But when you start with like a very obviously fake compliment mm-hmm. or a very clearly, you know, canned statement that you use over and over again, right? Like, I, I, I know you get all the same sassy emails I do. You know, there's so many of them. I'll get, you know, hi, I went to your website and it's really fantastic, except for this one part that completely sucks <laughs> and is terrible. But luckily for you, that's exactly what we fix. Yeah. And today's your lucky day because, you know, I'm here to tell you about the 91% off offer that we've got going on for three more days. Um, so, yes. I hope Talk- the listeners
2: are laughing because that's not what you're supposed to do.
0: Yes if that yes. if that is is your email cadence, please quit your job immediately. Yes right uh, please right. go do something else. Go work at a bookstore.
2: <laughs> go read some books. But they're really not making any effort to understand what their overall struggles might be and they do have struggles and I, it seems like a lot of companies think that everything's fine.
0: Well, they think that everything's fine or they think like, oh it doesn't matter what your problem is because we solve lots of problems. And and they're not really trying to get to understand you. It's 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 people who are who are are, are believing in volume over value, right? Mm-hmm. Like if we can just get enough of the people uh, at the top of the funnel, everything else will will work itself out. You know, the algorithm says we need this many, you know, cold leads, this many warm leads, this many qualified leads. You know. All of that, rather than the people behind the, the email addresses in the, in the domain. So in the second pillar of the superfan framework uh, or the supermodel framework, I make the argument that it is critically important to understand what your customer's real story is, yes. um, both – you know, in mass, like why, why do you exist and what problems are you solving, but also individually. So the S of story, which as you said, is kind of like the inception of customer experience frameworks or, or a turducken of frameworks, if you will. Um, and it's S is all about struggles. What is your customer really struggling with? Not just that surface struggle, right? But what is, what is the underlying
2: root problem? And it's often not that's what causing those tell symptoms. You.
0: Oh, it's very often, not what they'll tell you, right? It's very, very often. It's like when somebody would go to the doctor pre-WebMD days, and they would talk just about the symptoms, not about the underlying cause that was responsible for all of the seemingly disconnected but very likely interconnected symptoms that they were experiencing.
2: So that's a struggle. The next one is transformation, which is just… Solid gold, and there's, there's even, there was a book on the show a couple of years ago called Transformational Consumer by Tara Nicole Nelson, and it was all about just this one topic about how if you can understand or divine the transformation that customers are looking for, you're going to be much better off. And it's, again, it's not something they can necessarily tell you, but if you can understand the transformation they're looking for, you're going to win. Can you talk about that?
0: Yes, and I offer some scripts for this a little bit later in this same section of the book, where I talk about uh, really actively listening to, to to better understand what it is that your customer needs. Because you're right, sometimes they they don't even quite understand. But that transformation is is so critical. And in the in the book, I talk about um, how in old school infomercials, they always followed the exact same storyboard I guess for I don't know what you call it but it was like the storyboard was always the same you would see these people struggling with something they were all so exasperated you know life was so hard they couldn't figure it out and then all of a sudden it would freeze frame on somebody black and white usually like you know hands on their head or um, just you know just just totally distraught with an open mouth and and then they would just look at the camera and say there's got to be a better way. And then the miracle product would come on, right? And all of a sudden it was like back to like Technicolor. Um, Everything was different, right? Like life was forever changed and better. Um, And that was the transformation. And it's so funny how every single infomercial from back in the day followed that same formula. But it works. It works because you're you're visually showcasing the transformation. So when I talk about... Actively listening and understanding your customer stories, it's so that you can understand what's that transformation that they're ultimately looking for. What's going to be different for them as the result of working with you? They're giving you money for your product or service or experience. It is transactional in some form, but. They're looking for a transformation, not just a transaction. And when you understand what that is, and when you can help them understand what it is, then you can really be like a servant leader. You can really help them solve their problems in a way that's going to Make every you know it's gonna it's gonna be just like that infomercial. It's gonna make everything else better. It's gonna change everything. It's gonna be that moment that you know everything is now before and after.
2: Yes, and you're right. The transformation may have nothing to do with your solution on the surface, but it's got everything to do with how connections are made. So let's jump to uh, the next one was options, which I loved because you write the quickest way to lose a customer is by assuming they have no other options. And again, there, I got books on the brain today, but th- there was a book on the show a couple of years ago called The Science of Selling by David Hoffeld, a real, real, a real deep dive into the academic research of how the human brain makes decisions. And one of the things he talks about is a series of questions people ask when you're trying to sell to them, like, why change? Why now? Uh, Why Your Industry Solution? And in in that, there's, there's six of them actually, but he talks about how so many companies misunderstand that they'll say, oh, well, we don't really have any competition. <laughs> and he, he says no <laughs> a thousand times. No one knows what we do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if somebody oh. wants to
0: work with us, we're the only ones. Yeah. But the <laughs> said the every uh, short-lived business leader ever. <laughs> exactly.
2: Your customers have options, even if you don't think they do. And the example he gave in there was uh, he has a sales training company. But to a business, they may think, all right, I'm either going to hire the sales training company Or I might just buy the guy's book, give it to everybody. In other words, (laughs) as faulty as that might be, in their mind, they think they have options. And it's really important to understand that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, um, the example in the book that I give when I talk about options is my husband and I were buying garage doors recently. and. For anybody who has has tried to do that, my condolences. It is is an absolute disaster, uh, it it seems, in the best of cases. And and we had a a very uh, not best of case. And the garage door salesperson was, you know, completely – seemingly unsympathetic to our plight. Things like the fact that it was going to cost significantly more money than he had already quoted us in writing, that it was going to take, I think it was something like 24 weeks instead of the like 10 weeks that he had told us. And he was like, ah, well, I mean, anywhere else is going to tell you the same thing. So um, I, don't, I don't know what to say. This, and the price went from
2: like 7500 to ultimately 12000 I mean, this story was worse than airline stories.
0: Yeah. It was insane. And I was like, you know what? No, like it's not, I don't have to settle for this. Like refund my money. I want my deposit back. And he was like, well, you're not going to get new garage doors. And I was like, well, that's fine. I guess I'll get my garage <laughs> doors fixed. And so I found someone who fixed my garage doors for $300. And what I really wanted was like pretty nice new garage doors because our house was built in the 90s. We've lived here for like five years now, but um, our house was built in the 90s. And so the garage doors are, you know, basic, ugly, like not that great. And they don't, I mean, they are pretty old school. Like we can't even get, um, we can't even make them work on Bluetooth because they don't have whatever they need inside to do that. Um, so it's, you know, it would have been nice to have something that we could open with our phones, but I really just wanted something prettier. And so I went on Amazon and fun fact, you can get magnetic garage door decorations. So the beautiful wrought iron handles that I wanted on like the carriage house style garage doors that I was going to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for, I paid like $30 <laughs> on Amazon to get like total look-alike hardware. All of our neighbors were like, your new garage doors are Gorgeous, and they weren't new garage doors at all. It was magnetic handles and hinges, and then magnetic windows. And it's so funny because it looks from the street like brand new garage doors, but we spent like three hundred bucks to have somebody fix it, and then to put these magnets on rather than you know twelve grand for for new garage doors. Which you know, in the moment, it wasn't even about the money. It was about the fact that somebody was being so flippant about the fact that they were providing absolutely horrible customer service, like that was just okay with the explanation of like, oh, well, you're going to find the same thing anywhere. And so your customer always has other options, always, even if it's to take however much money they were going to spend on your thing and just buy a bunch of cake and give cake away to all their friends. Like there's always another option.
2: Yes. Oh, my goodness. Uh, It's almost like uh, sometimes I feel like I'm taking crazy pills (laughs) <laughs> and I have these terrible experiences, and then I'll read a book like this, and I'll think, oh, gosh, I'm not the only one. So it's like uh, your book uh, – Brittany Hodak's book includes a therapy session just by reading it. So uh, it was like a support group. <laughs> so I want to jump to the, the next one, reservations. Uh, it says, when you're talking to a customer, whether you're trying to land your first deal with them or your 50th, don't skip past their reservations. Explain what you mean there because this has big implications for content.
0: I mean that you should never gloss over concerns that a prospect or even a customer might have. You should never try to downplay things thinking like, oh, maybe maybe that worst case scenario won't happen or maybe that thing that they're concerned about won't play out. I am a huge believer, uh, and this leads into the why, which stands for you, meaning you, the the salesperson or the marketer or the service person, you should never agree to something for a customer that you feel like they are not the right fit for.
2: Yes. And so the reservations was just assume they're going to have reservations. And I think if you can bring it up beforehand, you build even more trust.
0: You absolutely do. And then you find out whether or not you are truly the right person to help through all of those reservations that they have.
2: Yeah. And if you're not... That's okay. That's the why of story. I, I'm sorry. I got sidetracked, but that, I just loved that section, and I thought it was so applicable to so many aspects of running a business or marketing or sales. Let's jump to the P uh, of super, personalize. Let's talk about Taylor Swift. Let's just go straight to the good stuff. You write, if you want your customers to love you, not just like you, but love you to the point that they become advocates who are sending new customers your way, make sure they feel the love too. So talk about what we can learn from your acquaintance, uh, Taylor Swift, about that because she is a brilliant, brilliant marketer. Always has been.
0: She's a brilliant marketer. I think she's one of the smartest marketers on the planet um, across every single industry. And in the book, I share a story of the first time Taylor and I met. It was way back in 2007. She was at an award show, she and I were both at the same award show, um, where she would win her very first ever televised award. She won a uh, breakthrough video of the year for a song called Tim McGraw. And a little bit later that night, we were at the after party together and she was there with an artist who I knew from interning um, at his label, an artist named Tyler Hilton, um, who funny enough at the time was like about as famous as she was. Um, and he was... Um, he was the star of her second music video. So they were at this party together and, and had walked to the red carpet and all of that. And so the three of us were talking at the time, um, Taylor was 17. Her first album had just gone gold, which means that it's sold like half a million copies. And one of the things that people were starting to talk about was how active she was on MySpace, which at the time was one of the largest music discovery sites on the internet. And she, did all of these other things that that fans just just adored like she would spend hours after shows meeting fans even if she got kicked out of the venues because they were closing she would like stand on the streets and sign autographs um she was always you know having like pizza parties before the show for fans and all of these other things and she said something during that conversation that i will never forget she said i knew that if i wanted to get a gold record I had to make half a million people care enough about me and my music to want to buy my album. So she had that laser focus of if I want them to care about me, I've got to let them know I care about them. So that idea of connecting her story to theirs was distilled so perfectly i mean i i knew right then i was like this girl is going to be a superstar like i looked over at tyler and i was like yeah she gets it like she totally gets it and of course over the past couple of decades since then she's become you know arguably the biggest superstar on the planet and and I think one of the most brilliant and innovative marketers in, in history, really. Mm-hmm. She has done um, so much to, to put her fans front and center in everything that she does to showcase, again, that they matter to her, that they're not just nameless, faceless individuals giving their credit card numbers and showing up at concerts. They are truly what enables her to have the life that she has and to do what she does, and she never misses an opportunity to let them feel that love. And neither do the smartest brands and the smartest business people. They never miss an opportunity to let their customers know how much they appreciate them.
2: Well, you know, we mentioned Chewy earlier. Can you give an example of how they were, and they're a multi-billion dollar company, how they were able to personalize uh, an experience for you? I think it was... When you were new to them.
0: Yeah. You know, my my very first email exchange with Chewy, I, I mention in this book, and I was getting some prescription dog food for for my pup, Bear. I didn't even know prescription dog food was a thing. And I followed the prompt on the website that said, if you want this dog food, you've got to send us your vet authorization. So I sent a very simple email to what I assumed was an automated inbox saying, hey, here's the prescription for this number, for this order number thanks so much and almost immediately like within 10 minutes i got an email back from a real person uh, whose name was kelly thanking me for the prescription but i'll i'll actually just read her email if i can if that's okay douglas yeah else, and I, she I've mentioned there. The she did yeah she literally my this is what my email said hello below and attached please find the prescription authorization for this order thanks brittany And Kelly wrote back, hi there, Brittany. Thanks so much for sending Bear's prescription directly. I've applied it to your order and everything is set. Once it ships out, you'll get an email confirmation and a tracking number. If you need anything at all, give us a bark. We're here 24-7 to lend a helping paw. Ciao, ciao for now, Kelly. (laughs) Right? I laughed too. I was like, that's so funny. She, you know, in, I don't know, 60 words or whatever it is. But as a Chewy customer,
2: I'm not surprised. By that story you told,
0: right? And so what? What I love about what I love about this email is, I didn't know anything about Chewy. Like this was the very first time I had ever been on their website. The very first time I had purchased anything. In my mind, they were just another pet store, right? Like no different from Petco or PetSmart or Pet Supermarket or or anywhere else, right? They were just like a, a website selling dog food. But because of this one email, I began to think of them. Not just as a website selling dog food, but as a partner helping me get something that my dog Bear needed for his digestive issues. Um, and she does so many great things, like you said. You, you already mentioned she used Bear's name. I didn't use Bear's name. She looked at the prescription and saw it was for Bear Hodak, and wrote back to me about Bear Hodak. She told Mm -hmm. me exactly what to expect next. She threw in some fun dog puns to let me know that they were a fun, playful company and really elevated what would have just been like a forgettable, ordinary, nothing burger of an email into something that made me say, oh, this company's pretty cool. I think I want to order from them again.
2: Yeah. One other quick question I want to ask before we move off of personalization is, (laughs) this is going to upset some folks, but explain what you mean when you write that if the gift You send a customer, has your logo on it, it's an ad, not a gift.
0: Um, You know, I stand 100% by that statement, and I I feel like I almost don't even need to explain it. Like if you put your your logo on it, it's an ad. I don't care how expensive it is. I don't care how nice it is. I don't care how often someone uses it. You can give someone a Tesla, and if it has your logo on the hood, that is an ad. You were asking (laughs) them to advertise your brand for them for free as they use whatever it is that you gave them that mm-hmm. is transactional that is not a gift that is an ad
2: yes and they can actually give lower priced gifts that have more relevance and and meaning even for industries where you're there's a restriction on on giving gifts and i think anyone that wants to even to learn even more about that should read john Ruland's book giftology It was revelatory for me, and it was really very interesting. And I'll include a link to his interview on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. Exceed expectations. So you write that regardless of the size of your business, you can follow, and let's say you're not a big multi-billion dollar company like Chewy, you can follow a three-step process to make exceeding expectations the norm. Can you talk about that?
0: Yes. So the three steps are first to map the experience that you want your customers to have. Really figure it out. Really design the experience. I talk a lot about this idea of intentional experience design. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know what it is that you want your customers to feel when they work with your brand, how are you going to make sure that they feel it? How are you going to teach your employees to help make sure they feel it? So the first step is what I call mapping, figuring out what you want that experience to be, and not just during the interaction, but before and after the interaction as well, because a customer's journey is much longer than the brand's journey with that customer. So you've got to account for what happens before they ever talk to you and after the your part of the transaction is over.
2: Yes. Oh, and I think that a lot of companies probably start down this road and they go, "Ooh, I, I you know what, we're not actually doing that." <laughs> they start to real, realize the experience they are currently providing, which is they're they're on the right track though. They're they're trying to improve that. So, that's mapping it out.
0: Yeah, mapping it out. And you know, I say in the book, like if you are a 17-person company and you start down the path of saying like I'm going to do a full customer journey map and, you know, you find yourself pulling your hair out 45 days later with a 17,000 cell Excel spreadsheet um, and 18 different colors and, you know, 900 tabs, like you are doing it wrong. (laughs) Your customer experience map and your customer journey map does not need to look like the flight manual for a Boeing Dreamliner. Yes, Yes. Like, you are trying to create a document that is useful and it will only be useful if people use it. So don't try to say, I'm going to map out every single potential thing that could happen in every single variable because it very uh, quickly can become a fool's errand, right? Like you're never going to be able to account for anything regardless of what your UX or UI guy might tell you. So don't worry about that. Worry about the, you know, 90 5% of people who are going to have the same handful of experiences and steps on their journey and really maximize those moments. Um, the, the, so the, you ask about the three-step process. It's yeah. map, measure, and maximize. So uh, number one, mapping out where can you potentially elevate an interaction into a memorable experience, into a moment that somebody is going to want to talk about. To experience again, to share with someone in some just way, just like
2: those emails you had with Chewy,
0: just like those emails, yes. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and 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 that's you know, it doesn't it doesn't have to be grandiose. You mentioned giftology. I, I love John Rulin. I love the book. I actually share a story about John in this book. But it doesn't have to be a gift because yes. the most remarkable marketing does not cost anything. It's like it's like the old MasterCard commercials, right? And it's like where, you know, everything costs something and then the memory is priceless. The mm-hmm. experience is priceless. Like you don't get people to love you by paying them or bribing them or giving them things, right? It's right back to what Oprah said. It's that validation. It's that feeling. It's that experience of saying you matter and because you matter, I'm doing this thing for you. I'm helping you with this transformation. It's more about, you know, it's 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 about you more than it's about me.
2: Yes, yes. And then you can start measuring things like you talk about. And and again, it doesn't have to be, you know, this isn't differential equations. <laughs> can, Thank God. Yeah, right? you can start can to say? Yeah, you can start to measure <laughs> measure certain things like the customer satisfaction score or the the earned growth rate which uh, Brittany goes into and then you talk about maximizing where you can start to zero in on the things that really make an impact. So The the one thing, last thing I want to ask about uh, on the exceed expectations and before we wrap up is, and again, this may be controversial, explain what you mean when you write that the adage that the customer is always right is not only incorrect and outdated, it's also potentially harmful in its widespread acceptance.
0: Yeah, you know, I think that this is something that had been accepted for so long and is one of those things that because it's sort of been drilled into people's consciousness that you have to help employees unlearn this bad habit because I do not think that the customer is always right, nor do I think every customer is the right customer. So it's very possible to, to be just, you know, the wrong customer or the right customer at the wrong time. And it's important to know this for a few reasons. I mean, if you think about like frontline employees who are, who are dealing with customers, they oftentimes are forced to deal with people who are you know, belligerent or out of line or irate. Mm -hmm. And you never want to lose a good employee over a bad customer. Like you've got to always be willing to stand up for your good employees when they are toe-to-toe with a bad customer. Because not only can bad customers cost you good employees, which is, you know, horrible, um, they can also cost you good customers because they can become disruptive, they can they can sort of throw off the vibe, uh, if you will. So I do write, and I kind of go into to some of the ways that you can identify a bad customer and how you, how you can go about removing yourself from a relationship with a bad customer, whether that means, you know firing them or, or, or banning them or, or anything else. But yes, I feel very strongly that the adage of the customer always being right needs to be, sort of enthusiastically retired.
2: Yes, I couldn't agree more. That's so important. And it's very important for leadership and employee experience, EX, as they say. So just one question about the repeat part where you you talked about it earlier, but I want to read from page 198 and ask you a, a really big question here. Brittany Hodek, Kodak, please. Sorry, I'm going to cut that out. Not every task will be something you can automate, but I have another hack for you. What if I told you, that you could begin using one of the most powerful pieces of productivity software ever created right now for free. What if the software had next to no learning curve, could be immediately customized to fit your exact needs, and was simple to optimize and update daily? Oh, and using it would increase your odds of success dramatically. Brittany Hodak, what what is this? What is this tool?
0: You've got to have it, right? You want it right now? I, you want I'm interested. It right now. Yeah. I,
2: Because it's not an app. It's not an app. It's
0: not an app. No, it is a checklist. (laughs) That's right. A simple checklist. That's it. That's all you need to crush your goals.
2: And you even mentioned uh, the bestseller, The Checklist Manifesto. But talk about, do you find a lot of companies that don't use checklists?
0: I do. Or I find a lot of companies who have very siloed, Checklists. They have people where it's like this department has their SLPs, another department has their own, and there's not a lot of knowledge sharing that happens across silos. And because of that, so much information is is lost. It's just completely gone. It's not utilized. Oftentimes, information that that companies are paying a lot of money to gather, either as you know, primary or secondary information. So yes, I do find lots of companies that are not using checklists almost without exception to their detriments.
2: One last thing I want to ask you about and, and in our time. There's so much uh, we, we weren't able to get to, but I want to quote from uh, page 243, because I just I love it when an author talks about a question they get all the time. And you write, One topic I'm frequently asked about at speaking engagements is social media. Many professionals have told me they find social media intimidating, believing they're too old or too uncool to keep up with an ever-growing slate of new networks and trends, each with its own nuances and norms. Others are uncomfortable about the privacy implications of this experiment we're all living through. Others simply don't see the need to incorporate social media into their businesses. I've been selling insurance for 30 years without social media. I see no reason to change now, someone told me once. How does Brittany Hodak respond when she hears a lot of people... Uh, confront her with these, these issues.
0: Well, to that particular individual, I believe I asked him if he was selling insurance today or 30 years ago. Yes, I love (laughs) it. And I said, you know what? If you don't want to be on social media, that is 100% okay. There are plenty of people out there willing to take those customers from you. Like, that's fine. It's your choice. If you don't want to meet your customers and your prospects where they're at, someone else will be glad to do it for you. (laughs) Um. And, you know, I think the problem with social media is, you know, there's this great Albert Einstein quote. I think it's in the book. I don't know if it's in the book or not. I know it was in one draft of the book. Um, and that was not everything that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts. Yes. And I It was think- in there. It was okay, good. I'm glad that made it. I was I was telling Douglas before we started recording that I wrote close to I think it was like 123,000 words for this less than 60,000 word book. And so I have completely lost track of some of the stories that aren't in here or some of the right, some right. of the research, some of the facts, which is why in the book I share a URL that people can go to for uh the deep cuts, if you will, you uh, the things that, uh, that that maybe didn't make it in for one reason or another. But with social media, because it's so easy to focus on numbers, and because the platforms have have made that the focus, because of course that's great for advertisers, we can kind of fall into that trap of forgetting about the people behind those profile pictures. And you know, I argue that you should not. Care about followers unless you are trying to start a cult, and if you are, please don't buy this book. Like I want everybody to use the the power in this book for good and not evil. So please, if you're trying to start a cult, like go buy another book, not this one.
2: Actually, there was another book on the show a year or two ago about the marketing lessons from people who built cults.
0: Well, there you go. Yeah, I mean some big success stories there.
2: He he recommended this. I'll I'll include a link to it in this episode's website page. But uh, he also said. Don't do this, people. This <laughs> doesn't end well.
0: <laughs> it's a disclaimer. Yeah. You could do this. I know yeah. I'm showing you how to make the bomb, but like, right. don't make the bomb. This yeah. is just 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 if you're curious, not yeah. if you're not if you're a terrorist. Shep wrote a book called "The Cult of the Customer" as well. That's I will condone that one. Okay, you can read that book.
2: Okay, the well, Cult anything by Shep, Hyken. by Shep Hiken? Come
0: on, <laughs> I know I love I love Shep. Oh. He's he's absolutely the best. He's without a doubt the best. He's my adopted uncle. I call him Uncle Shep. I love him.
2: Well, you're he in good hands. Nice every
0: time we're hanging out together. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Well, so it, it's also interesting. You you talk about how. Um, The most common mistake I see professionals and entrepreneurs make with their social media by far (laughs) is not having a strategy that guides the creation and distribution of the content they share. Instead, they just sort of follow trends, chase hashtags, or try to replicate what they see working for others. And then, of course, listener, she doesn't leave you hanging. She then goes through and shows how to use a super model on how to better use – Brittany, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be?
0: I would hope it would be that anyone, anywhere, regardless of the industry that you're working in, can create super fan customers, can create loyal, enthusiastic advocates who no longer care at all about what it's going to cost to work with you or how long it's going to take because they've got their person. And I give examples in this book of my exterminator, of, you know, lots of other service professionals that you might not traditionally think like, oh, somebody loves that person and is out there telling all of their friends about them. But I promise you, regardless of the industry that you're in, even if you're a divorce attorney, you can create super fans.
1: <laughs> That's
2: great. That's great. So let's give the listener something to do today. What What's one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book?
0: One thing that you can do is ask yourself, what are you the best in the world at? What mm. is it that you do better than anyone else that should make your prospects and customers choose you instead of your competitors? Mm. And, and once you have the answer to that question, ask yourself how easy it is for your prospects and your customers to get to that answer. Like, are you hiding it or does it exist only in your brain? Or is it the narrative that you're using on all of your customer-facing materials? Like, don't make someone work hard to figure out why you're great.
2: Just tell them. That is great. And I don't know if it's related to it, but there was a part in your book where you talk about how A lot of what your story or you're good at comes back to your childhood –
0: Yes, or I'm a huge, huge believer in origin stories and the fact that there is a compelling narrative arc for every single one of us from where we started out to where we've ended up at this point in our lives. And by this point, I mean, at any point in your career, you can, you can sort of use hindsight and, you know, take a look through those rose colored glasses and paint that story in a way that's going to make it memorable, but also meaningful in a way that somebody's going to say, oh, I get it. I understand why they're here, and I care because. And then, of course, the fill in the blank with the because, which connects your story to theirs.
2: Oh, that's great! Well, looking back, what books have have most inspired your work and career?
0: You know, um, everything written by Shep has been has been really inspirational to me. Excellent um, answer. Yes. Love, love, love him. You mentioned at the top, my my good friend, Joey Coleman, he wrote a book called Never Lose a Customer Again that I just adore. Uh, And he's got a new book coming out later this year called Never Lose an Employee Again. And it is equally wonderful, if not better. I may like this one even more than the first, um, but it's so, so good. So you'll have to have Joey back on the show when when that book comes out. But yeah, I would say that's another one. And then the last one, which is a more recent book, but I really enjoyed it, and it's not a customer experience book at all. Really, um, it's a book called Soundtracks by a guy named John Acuff, and oh, it's yeah. about. You mentioned that it in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a great book. It's all about how to turn, as he says it, and I'm going to get this a little bit wrong, but it's how to turn overthinking from a super problem to a superpower. How to kind of retrain your brain so that those he calls them negative soundtracks, but the like repetitive internal monologue that's maybe like mean thoughts or um, gosh, what does he call them? Um, Basically like untrue um, things that you believe because you've said them to yourself over and over and over again, but they aren't the truth. So it's a book about being conscious of those soundtracks and changing them um, so that you're no longer saying negative things and limiting your beliefs in your mind without realizing it. But these soundtracks that you're listening to all the time, mostly subconsciously, um, are positive and not negative.
2: I think people should also know that when you buy the book, and there's a a URL, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's in the book, and when you... Read through. Read the book first. That's the point I'm trying to make here. You need to read the book in order to appreciate all the the resources that Brittany's offering. And I actually signed up for it myself, and it's it's really very good and very uh, comprehensive, and uh, I, I recommend it. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned, your website, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account, and now a word to you, dear listener. Please reach out in some way. To Brittany and congratulate her on this book. Thank her for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. You know, she's very responsive. Reach her on Twitter, LinkedIn, go to her website, Guests on the show have told me that they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, and not just because Marketing Book Podcast listeners are so ridiculously good-looking. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is Creating Superfans, How to Turn Your Customers into Lifelong Advocates. The author is Brittany Hodak. Brittany, Thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Thank you, Douglas. I am now and forevermore a super fan of you and the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me on.
2: And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary they wrote a book about it. For a copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you are one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune.